Welcome to the Soul Craft Your Life podcast. My name is Carmen Marshall, and I'm a life design and manifestation expert, a seven-figure entrepreneur, wellness educator, and a dance teacher. And I'm passionate about helping you create a magical and fulfilling life. Whether you want to discover your purpose, learn how to attract financial abundance, or create more health, balance, joy, and connection in your life, the Soul Craft Your Life podcast has got you covered. One part strategy and one part soul. Each week we explore both the practical and the spiritual with intriguing experts and fascinating human beings, all sharing their wisdom to help expand what we think is possible for our own lives. The goal? To help you create a life you love on your own terms that stems from your soul. Let's dive in and discover what this life has to offer each of us. Hi, gorgeous souls. Welcome to episode eight, which is all about living a life less ordinary with Phil and Penny Kirk. Phil and Penny are two of the most fascinating, heart-centered, and genuine human beings that I've had the privilege of meeting and having in my life for the past 20 years. They epitomize creating and living a life less ordinary. Their years have been filled with the accumulation of experiences. They've been professional athletes, coaches, parents of three musician sons, and business owners, just to name a few titles. And by choice, they've moved 37 times in their 50 years of marriage in an ongoing quest for new adventure and letting go of attachment to stuff. From New York to New Mexico, from farms to monasteries, from construction companies to manufacturing supplements, from owning the abominable Snowman Lodge to building an international network marketing team, they have lived a rich and varied life with a combined 80 plus years of experience in the pursuit of wellness, purpose, and what truly matters in life. I met Phil and Penny when I was researching what network marketing company I wanted to partner with after selling my first network marketing business. Over the past 20 years, they have not only been the best sponsors and mentors I could have asked for, but they're also two of my most favorite people in the world because of their outlook on life, their wisdom, their hearts, and honestly, every time I talk to them, they are always up to something new, unusual, fun, and mind-expanding. I can't wait to introduce Phil and Penny to you as we explore what it means to create a life less ordinary in livelihood, experiences, and a connected relationship of over 50 years. Important, we got cut off three quarters of the way through and we had to finish the recording the next day. So next week's episode number nine will be the last quarter so that you don't miss any of the wisdom. So don't be surprised when the interview just ends abruptly. That's exactly what happened. And we'll start next week where we left off. All right, let's dive in. So Phil and Penny, I'm so excited to have you here. I think you of all people just epitomize the idea of a life less ordinary and just what you've lived, like your, the livelihoods that you've chosen, the fact that you've been in relationship for all these years and are so similar in what you're looking for in life. And then also the experiences, like every time I talk to you, there is always something interesting going on in your life. <laughs> And so I really want to explore like what has made you what you are, what has made your relationship last all these times and the experiences that you've just gone through in your life are just fascinating. But before we get started, let's just share with our listeners where you are right now so they can get a sense of where you live right now. 
Well, we live in Corrales, New Mexico, which is a little, uh, originally it was a little farming village on the west side of the Rio Grande River, north of Albuquerque, New Mexico. And we have a little uh, one acre and a half, um, we call it a uh, mini farm. There are things growing here. We're we're ra- rather new to it. You know, Phil and I, in our travels and in our in the life we've lived, we have rarely owned our own home. So this is a new experience for us. Actually, in the last two years, we decided to unpack for a while and grow some things. So we have some grapes growing and some peaches growing and some <laughs> pears growing. And yeah, yeah. that's where we are. Yeah, we were really fortunate because we, a neighbor of ours at another place where, where we were renting, uh, was a friend of the person who owned this property. And the lady who owned this, Rachel, was a, an organic farmer. And she had really worked this land organically. And it had some grapes and had fruit trees and uh, two small houses on it um, that were in need of a little work. And so we just took it on as a project and started to learn about the land and growing things and and what it requires even on an acre and a half of farmland to to maintain it. You know, it's it's considerable Mm. if you do it right. And this is so what I love. Like, honestly, every time I talk to you, you are doing something different. And and you look at your background. I mean, coming from both being on the U.S. ski team to then Phil being a turnaround lawyer, like going into businesses and helping them turn around and then building an international network marketing company, owning a ski lodge or or an adventure hostel called the Abominable yeah, Snow Mansion. Climbing Mount Everest, it's just going to India to do deep studies. It's just you're always doing something so interesting. So before we go into all those experiences, what do you think started all it all off when you were younger, like individually, even before you met each other? Well, I'll, I'll speak first. And uh, for me, I was very interested in ski racing. And I started ski racing when I was six years old and continued on through making the U.S. team when I was 16, and which enabled me to travel around the world. But even younger, and I think, you know, I came from a family of five, and and I was the middle. And I have an older sister who uh, was the, her focus was getting straight A's in school. And I, I, I think it was cl- quite clear to me that I was not going to compete with that. And so I moved into the arena that I saw I could compete, and that was in physical things. So, and that's why I love skiing and I love ski racing, which was kind of a setup for a lifestyle of moving around and appreciating being in other cultures and other environments. Yes, and similarly for me, I started out a little differently. Um, I was always like my. my Grandparents, everybody used to say whenever I come to visit, I never sat still. I always wanted to be outside. I always wanted to be doing something, physically engaged in something. And I was super inquisitive to the point, I think, mm-hmm. of being annoying when I look back at it. <laughs> and um, and so art and sports were my two real loves. And academics were there. And I, you know, I did them. Um, but it wasn't about getting A's. You know, I things to learn that was great, 
I wasn't interested in what the subject matter, I didn't, eh, I get through it. But, you know, art, music, sports. And um, I also would, every chance I got to travel and see things and explore things. Um, I remember going to Mexico when I was in high school and got to study a year of Spanish in one summer. And that was great. But what was amazing to me in those days was going to Mexico City in particular and the artwork, the murals that were painted. And I I can remember them like it was yesterday. And that was 60 years ago, I think. I don't know. It was so amazing to me. And so I kind of got a bug for that when I was younger. And then... Mm you know, loving skiing like Penny did, you know, I ended up racing for the University of Vermont and then did a stand on the pro circuit for, uh, also and worked in the industry. And that's how I met Penny, actually. Mm, so I, both had the wanderlust and this, this excitement about seeing the world and seeing things and, and never as a tourist, always just as a person who dropped in and wanted to identify with and soak up the culture and the experiences of the place. So that, that's, I think, how it all started. Yeah, I so understand that. I, I always wanted to live in places, not just go as a tourist, but actually live there as yeah. if you were you know, part of that. Yeah, it's so different than being a tourist. This is a little side note about me, Penny. When I was still at the University of Vermont at the time, and there was a fairly big race called the New England Kandahar. <laughs> I'd love to tell this story. And uh, I'm a little older than Penny. So we're at this race, and it was a, one of the races where the men and the women competed on the same course. Women ran first, then the men. And I remember there was this really attractive young lady about 15 years old, that nobody, who is this showing up? She doesn't normally race on this circuit. And she just blew everybody off the course, beat all the women by a lot. And um, so I remembered seeing her and it was just, and, and then I found out what her name was. And I hear all of a sudden, you know, I don't know how many years later. Probably seven, six, five, four, five, four six, or five seven, years later, later, six years later. That's when I ended yeah. up, uh, I would build some prototype skis at K2 for Penny because she was skiing for K2 at the time. We were at ball training in Aspen, and I went up there and um, had, I don't know, about 20 pairs of skis for a prototype, different flexes and um, side cuts and all kinds of stuff for her to try. And uh, so I would knock on the door and I said, I have some uh, skis for Penny Northrup. But she here and said, oh, yeah, she's the one that's singing over there in the over there where that, that bathroom is. If you want to go see her. So I go <laughs> and hear Penny singing this song and washing her ski socks. And and I just said, I said, who I was. I said, I know that song. And I think it was a was Clouds, Judy, yeah, Johnny Mitchell, some, a, Judy, some, Collins Judy Collins or Johnny some, Mitchell or like Joan Baez or some. You and know. I and I said, and uh, so she said, "Do you do good?" I said, "Yeah." And I played guitar a little bit. So anyway, we ended up. I delivered the skis of cars, but we ended up sitting down 
and playing this music together. And that's really uh-huh. how we met. And then I remembered, oh, you're the Penny Northrop who raised it. Well, the yeah. New England Kandahar. She says, yeah, I said, I was there. I saw you do that. Wow. And I always hoped we'd meet again. So that's really, that's and, when and, it started. And we've yeah. been together ever since. And what set Phil apart in my mind at that moment and the conversation we got into was the fact that he had sailed across the Atlantic Ocean in a sailboat with his friends and ended up in, you know, going through the Azores and Gibraltar. And and I was completely fascinated with that, with the thought of that. Um, and it was very much a different conversation than I had had with the typical person in the ski industry. And then did you date very long or like, was it a long dating period or did you get well, married? We, we developed a friendship. Uh, in those days, you weren't, you know, people that worked in the industry weren't allowed to date uh, people in the ski team. So, uh, and I would, had retired from ski racing. I had a pretty bad injury and that kind of ended that. But um, so we became very close friends. And I would honestly say because Penny was still on the World Cup tour and I was in, in on and off it with, equipment and working and then the u.s ski team ran out of money so a lot of us that were working in the industry that were ski racers ended up helping coach because they couldn't pay some of the coaches Mm -hmm. and i think that even draw drew our relationship closer Mm -hmm. so we were seeing each other a lot and so i would say that was starting the fall of 1971 and you know, and then it, it just evolved into a relationship. We got married was 1973. I did not. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, so we were, to, you know, we were together and in a relationship for sure. Yeah, you know, after the 72 and then got married in May of 73. So when you got married, did you start with the typical job? Or did you right away decide, okay, we're going to do something different so that we can travel the world and explore and experience? What was that kind of trajectory for you? I, I think we've even, there are a couple of things that happened um, prior to us getting married that set the direction, actually, of our relationship. And that was experiences that we had separately. Um, that were common, that were similar. And that had to do with being involved in a high level activity. For me, it was in the middle of a race. I had the experience of, of actually becoming a witness of myself racing. So being an observer of myself going through a course and it happened a couple of times. And in both instances, I, I was like, uh, as I said, an observer, and I won. It was like I was a completely not connected to it. And Phil had a similar experience playing tennis. So when we got together and started to really share that, and we all both at that time, we did not know this at the time, but we both had been initiated into TM, into Transcendental Meditation, because we were seeking it was like, how did we have that experience? What was it? And how do we have that again? 
And yeah. so that's when when we got married, that was very much uh, a very big focus of our life and seeking out teachers. So the first the first actual, you know, three years of our marriage, um, we were and then the first year we we spent a lot of time going to a lot of different talks, a different uh, you know, lectures, different, and and again, yeah, this is the all, early seventies. Yeah, all kinds of people <laughs> too. I mean, we're not talking about just you know the philosophers, yeah. you know, other people that had experienced what we had, you know, because I, I had the same thing that she did in a pretty high level tennis match that I was never supposed to. I was playing against a person much higher ranked than myself, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and I don't know, I just got into this zone and it was just like Penny said, you're all of a sudden you're outside yourself. Everything is in slow motion. The, 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 the awareness and the, it's just amazing. I, I, I've also had that experience once or twice um, playing music, but mostly it was these two particular events that occurred for us that we talked a lot about it. And so, you know, let, let's, Find out what's going on here. You know, in the books at that time was, you know, Psycho-Cybernetics had just been written. Um, Dennis Waitley's book, The Psychology of Winning, actually came even a little later. Then you had you had um, Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, and you had the tennis, um, was it Timothy? Huff? Inner tennis. Inner tennis. tennis. So that was Timothy starting, Galway, yeah. Timothy Galway, it was starting to bubble up in in athletics and, and in the culture. And as I said, it's the early 70s. And so Phil and I, those early years, were all about this search. Yeah. And, and that's what launched us. So in those early years, yeah, we were just, and, and I also had decided, and I don't know to this day what possessed me to do this, but, um, you know, I'd gone to law school. That's seven years of school from freshman year in college. You know, and uh, I realized I didn't really want to practice law and be stuck in a law firm. I never could have handled that. But um, I got, I had a lot of science background. My parents were both research scientists. My father was absolute genius he was a mensa and Mm. so much of his inquisitiveness and his inventiveness he was an inventor that kind of rubbed off on me and my brother and sister also we all of us and my mother was absolutely brilliant she was doing research with my father so i began to just i wanted to know i got so interested how this body that we occupy for a lifetime yeah. how how does it work and how we can how can we support it you know it's like i got to take care of this i've been given this body this lifetime i want to know more about it so uh, i went back to the university of vermont with penny and i enrolled and i took biochemistry microbiological genetics i worked in a virology lab with these two people that were splicing um you know taking apart viruses and and splicing things into them and using viruses as delivery systems and i mean if you think about what's going on today 
we're talking about uh, early 1970. All right. And, I, you know, I was just fascinated with it. And um, just quantum physics in those days was just a term that was a little bit being talked about. But I was so fortunate. I had this amazing professor who was really into it. So then we, you know, got into those kinds of discussions. And I think that um, my thought was a possibility of going to, to med school. But then I realized when I really looked into it, I actually got, I think I was headed to Dartmouth Medical School, but I realized I'm the, the direction it's going and what my true interest is are quite different. Mm. And that I felt that there was something more to living a life a little differently and relying more on natural means and plant medicine and things like that. So we, that, that pain, I just, that's how we incorporated things into our lives. And it wasn't until, what was it, late 1970s when I, we, we realized, you know, <laughs> we're going to start a family. If we're going to do any of that stuff, probably we both should get settle in and just, you know, decent jobs and a well so economically what that looked like was you know phil worked with a friend painting houses i worked for my father in his dental office we coached ski racing we coached tennis you know we it's just like you just things. start to create mm, whatever mm. you need in terms of the livelihood yeah. and that eventually and then when i did get pregnant with our our oldest son, Jacob, well, then it was kind of like that led to us. It, it's like, know, okay, a, well, a lawyer friend, <laughs> more serious Penny, about income. And yeah. And a lawyer friend of Penny's father, who was a real character had, I had met him and um, he just wanted, asked me to come in one day. And uh, I think that was really where, where it all started about uh, just starting to learn about, there's other things you can do besides trial law, sitting in an office all day during, doing research. So, I mean, I, to make a very long story around that short, I ended up being introduced to the world of um, turnaround management, which is, um, and usually lawyers do that because sometimes you got get involved with the courts if the company's in real trouble. But it had to do with just if you're entrepreneurial, like Penny and I were because of just our natures, and you um, have a, a background like what I did, and, uh, you know, it's a, this would be a perfect thing for you to do. So I, the first thing that happened was that I was asked to look into a company that was in, that was in the aerospace industry. This is space shuttle time you guys this is a ways back for a lot of you that are listening to this <laughs> uh and uh this company had was in charge of the um what's called atmospheric revitalization and uh pressure control system which is the life support systems for the space shuttle that was their subcontract and they were running into some stuff internally and i was asked to come in just like as a new young employee that was going to be you know, learn about the business and do some administrative management stuff. Well, my real job that the board asked me to do was to come in and go to all the different departments and find out what was wrong, what was mm. going on. 
because they felt something wasn't right. And so that's what I did. And I did happen to find out what was wrong, which had to be to do with a prime contractor trying to put this company in a position where they could acquire their technology, force them into giving the technology. And that I met with work, told them what was going on. And then my reward for that was, okay, you're going to become the general manager of this company. I, and, and I ended up being a, the president of that company. That was my first real serious job. And, but it was fun. And, and again, you know, it's like into the frying pan, you know, the, you, you, well, here I am. Okay, I got to figure this out. So that's how that started. And then that became quite lucrative. And I ended up being referred to it then to another company that was in trouble. And uh, then another company and all that. And then we started, to have, well, we had Jacob with our first son. And but what, and what really happened with that was as interesting as it was and as lucrative as it was, I was gone all the time. Mm -hmm. I was in Europe for two to three weeks every six weeks. Then I'd fly out to the West Coast. And we were living in the, in the East Coast at the time of U.S. And it was I was away all the time, and I was hardly even, I mean, I'd come home sometimes, and my son, he's growing, and I'm, he's looking at me, and it's like, who is this, you know? Mm -hmm. And that that was a very interesting time in our lives. And one of the people I was working for said to me one day, um, and I, to I told Penny this, I said, I just was called into the chairman and CEO's office of this one company. And he is a very eccentric guy. And he wanted to offer me a job. And this is a publicly traded company. He wanted to offer me a job as executive vice president in the office of the president he didn't want to be in there anymore and he wanted to be in europe and he was into race cars and all kinds of other stuff and he offered me this insane amount of money and a ferrari <laughs> to do this in the whole life and he, and he'll tell you, i came home and we had made an agreement around this particular situation this guy said penny if the, if this situation ever looks like they're offering something where they're going to own me like, there's no way out of this. I'm in it. And I said, I want you to tell me. So I came home and told her what had happened. And she said, remember when you told me? <laughs> and never, she yeah. said, this sounds like it. Yeah. So the next day I went in and resigned. Wow. It, it, you know, it, it, again, it was at it, this part of our life. We're still pursuing an understanding of our spiritual life. We're still, yeah. so in a way, it was a little bit schizophrenic. Um, and so one of the things that I realized certainly is that, and the, and the who Phil worked for, he's really being very, very, you know. He was very, like a Howard Hughesian character. Yeah. It's he was like, like a, an understudy of Howard Hughes. I always like the term, you know, men behaving badly on their big boats. Um, men behaving badly, you know, with a lot of money and a lot of power traipsing around the world with, you know, whatever. And, and so it was kind of like that. And the contrast, you know, at one point, Phil would come back and we were living 
in my grandmother's at my grandmother's house, which she had a farm. And so I'm tending chickens and I'm milking goats and Phil's going off and he's driving Ferraris and going to these high end hotels in Europe. And then he'd come back and he'd be like, you know, okay, now life back on the farm with Penny and the kids. It's like, okay, now there's a reality check here. You know what? I like this a lot better. Yeah. Even though it was fun to drive a turbo Porsche Carrera from <laughs> Salt from um, Stuttgart to Salzburg and Salzburg to Marbella, that was like my my route to deliver bills. This guy's car. Anyway, <sighs> it was, back, a, it was, it was just a crazy, crazy time. It was a crazy but time. Yeah. There's little experiences that help you yeah. figure out well what's oh, important yeah. to me. Yeah, and yeah. it was that spiritual yeah. quest, that groundedness. Yeah. And Penny and I had this this sense real early on that we just had to trust each other with each other. And, you know, and no judgment here, just trust each other with each other. And that she could speak her mind to me and I could speak my mind to her. And when I see that something was, "Mm, Pen, you better take a look at that. Or she, you know, with me, was coming back from these things. And I, I tell you, you can't believe what I just went through in Marbella with one of the girlfriends and Devin to get her out of jail. And I said, I don't want to do this anymore. This is really what I was hired to do, um, but it is what it was turning into. And so many people I've seen have this happen in their lives where they get stuck. And they get in a situation they can't get out of because they don't think they can. And they don't have a place where they can go or a person they can be with that can really allow them to express how they feel and then process things. And so that's, I think that was super important for both of us. And I also think money plays a big role in, you know, if, if, if you get used to a lot of money coming in, you, get, you, you change your lifestyle to that extent where the thought of not having it um, is, is worse than than having to just uh, alter your, it's like your endur- personal beliefs yeah. around what you're doing. Enduring, and, you know, what's the bigger pain? Not having the money that you just have access to or living with the pain of having to compromise who you are? Yeah. And that was really big, you know. And, and we, you know, Penny and I, money with, for us was just a vehicle to allow us to explore and to, do, to be on this quest. where wherever it was, you know? And so anyway, that part of our lives kind of ended and, you know, in a good way. And uh, so now what do you do? So what did we do? Well, we we, built log homes. We were interested in (laughs) sustainable living. We were interested in natural, natural materials and all that. So um, I started a company with Penny. We started a company building custom log homes. Now, I'd had a lot of help. My dad taught me a lot about woodworking and all that was his real hobby. And he was very accomplished. And I remember as a little kid, him building an addition on our house and designing. Because he was, in addition to being a PhD chemist, he also had a degree in architecture. So it was a really unusual combination. Very artistic in that way. And so I I had these skills ruminating around in the back of my head and at work doing carpentry and stuff, you know, for odd jobs going while I was going to school. 
And so we started this business and it was really fun and a completely different experience from what I did for a few years prior to that. So uh, we, it just, and then we were raising a family, you know, and a lot home that we built for ourselves. And then we did that intensely for a few years. Mm. And then we realized that we had a real interest in learning more about health, learning more about, you know, physical things. We started to look at the world of supplementation, which we always had. I grew up with it in my family of, you know, my mom was always putting vitamin C in our orange juice. I mean, this was in the 50s. And we raised our own beef and we had our own gardens. And and my dad was a dentist and, and he really understood the need for these kinds of quality foods to have a healthy mm-hmm. life. So Phil mm-hmm. and I started to look at that. And one thing that it led us to is to explore the study of macrobiotics. And at the time, that was in Boston, Massachusetts, yeah. with Michio Kushi, who was the head of the Kushi Institute. He and his wife had founded that. And so we became really interested in learning about macrobiotics and the understanding of really eating for what it is you want to do, the environment that you live in. And it, it made a lot of sense to us. So we upended the family and moved to Boston. And Phil, of course, as it's always happens in our life, Phil well, would end up. I was studying macrobiotics. But Phil would end up with the key person. Yeah. And I got to know Michio. <laughs> and then he, I, he, one, he asked me a little bit about myself. And I asked him, what, you know, I found out he, he actually was trained as an attorney himself in Japan before he ever came to the U.S. And we just got to start up a friendship, really. And he was teaching classes, and there were other people that worked that were teaching these classes. And then he was taking cooking with Avaline Kushi. And so we just kind of developed that whole thing. And then this company, Erwan, that Misho had started, got into financial trouble. And um, it had to do with some mismanagement, not his. But um, one day, Misho. He asked to speak to me. I came over to his home and I was sitting there and he started to tell me what was going on. And he said, you said you, you had some business background and you used to fix companies when they were. And I said, well, I did. Yeah, I used to do that. And he says, well, could you take a look at this for me? So next thing I know, he I'm hired to turn around Erwan. And we actually were able to uh, turn the company around. And so I, in that whole process, again, I was able to kind of use skills, a lot of new stuff I had to learn for sure. And, uh, you know, Penny was right there. We just had our third son. And we were actually running a study house and and living with, we had, we had three people living in the house. So I am, I, and I learned the macrobiotic cooking so I was cooking for the people who were living in the house along with our family because they were had a, they had a, a variety of physical issues that they were trying to work with using a diet. So every single day I was putting together 
a full course macrobiotic meal. And that was, uh, and then, you know, being pregnant and then having the child at home. And we went through that year um, with the deep dive, deep dive into macrobiotics. Yeah. So, you know, that was a a process that was a little, took over a little over a year. And during that whole time, you know, we were, we became more and more immersed in macrobiotics and I became more, I was spent, I was literally with Michio every day. And I really began to understand what he really meant by macrobiotics. And I, I love to, te- to get this message out to people because it was so misunderstood. There was so much stuff about the number seven rice diet where you ate rice for seven days, all, all this crazy stuff. And it wasn't crazy stuff, really. But I mean, for some people that might, that wasn't really the true essence of it. It was what Penny just said a little while ago. Macrobiotics is essentially eat for what you believe and what you want to do in your life. Mm. We used to always say, if you want to play football for the Green Bay Packers, you better eat meat. <laughs> and I mean, people would say, what did he just say? You know, and, you know, and, and we would, it was a variety of things when it's cold out and you eat differently than when it's warm out, and you, tr- you eat what, what if, if the area you live in where you can grow food, you it's better to eat that way. And and you know you needed to understand what your needs were, what your beliefs are around food, and what you needed, and what you wanted to do in your life. And and then that was how you built how you ate. And he said when people get into these, what he called these these. Um, I can't remember the term you used, but it's like rabbit holes. Yeah. I go eat raw all the time. Or, oh, only vegetables or only fruit. I remember that fruitarians were really big in those days. In the winter, they were sick all the time. Freezing. <laughs> Freezing, all eating raw fruit. Are you kidding? <laughs> you know, so all those things were going on. And, and you could see how everybody, you know, I don't fault any of those people because everybody was a pioneer in those days. We were all trying to learn what was going on. This is in the 70s. And we're trying to learn what was going on and what made sense. And we, and the whole world, antibiotic world was being thrust upon the medical system and upon all of us, everybody. And that's when it was really starting to burgeon and people going, this doesn't feel right. This doesn't sound right. What should we do? And so people were experimenting. I mean, we were experimenting, and I and I think it was exciting, and all of us made a lot of mistakes, and um, but we really learned from the mistakes, probably more than we learned from our successes. So it was a very very exciting time in the mm. in the seventies, and then into the eighties when um, after that was all done, <clears throat> I always felt. When I was in the macrobiotic community, that as I really appreciated their desire to eat really clean food and to eat um, more, uh, you know, balanced, you know, not building everything around a meal around a steak and a, you know, few canned vegetables. We're talking about building a real diet. But one of the problems was that um, micronutrient deficiency. 
you know, the all these micronutrients that are constantly involved in all the biochemical reactions that take place in the body continuously, that you need to have those in a balanced form so the body can access them. So they don't, you're, you're not substituting and creating kind of a out of balance, almost sometimes ill health situation. Um, so I started to really, really study that. And again, background with my family and um, what courses I took after after college, after law school. I got very interested in that. And I ran into a friend of mine at the time who was Canadian and he was looking into the same thing and got together and we um, formed a company called um, Advanced Nutritional Research. And, you know, it was a startup. There we were. And we started it up. We started to build this company. Mm. And that was 1980, I think. And uh, and then I ended up buying the company from my partner because he wanted to go do something else. And we ran, had that for for many years. I mean, what, mm. eight years, I think. And then um, got a chance to experience what it's like to deal with Wall Street takeover stuff and people trying to attack the company and take it over and all kinds of really, really challenging things. But we ended up um, selling and parting our ways in the late 1980s. Um, Wealth of experience in that world, um, probably. Mm. And it served us so well because we were, you know, and, and one thing that Penny mentioned earlier, but through this entire journey that we've just been talking about, pr- premier importance for us was kind of four or five elements of health. And that is, you got to get adequate rest, try to reduce stress, eat the healthiest diet you can, and then and supplement your diet and um, exercise paramount importance and mm-hmm. the level of exercise what you did in terms of that all had to do with again what you wanted to achieve it's like following the macrobiotic philosophy if you wanted to be you know penny and i trained a lot differently when we were ski racing than we did when we were training to go um at mount everest because we didn't want the same body for those two kind of endeavors so that was always a right there. That and a and a disciplined spiritual practice. I would say those two yeah. things, wouldn't you? Yeah. I have to add, add a little humor here because for those of you who are listening, who you know have the friends who show up at your house with their bag, their grocery bag, because they can't eat your food. We were those people. Okay. <laughs> I don't want to- our families if you ask this question to our families we were the ones who were like when we were like into the macrobiotic thing we certainly we could not eat this and what happened is we started to recognize the limitation of the belief Mm -hmm. of what we were eating time for a quick commercial break It's July and we're halfway through 2023. It's crazy, eh? 
But with six months left, now is the ideal time to refocus and recommit to your 2023 dreams and goals. My Create Your Dream Year five-day course in just one and a half hours per day will help you reach your goals this year. Not next year, not in five years, but this year. Why? Because Create Your Dream Year is not your normal goal-setting course. It's a goal-manifesting course. It turns traditional goal-setting on its head. It's the antidote to why most people don't achieve their goals and they actually stop dreaming. It combines the practical with the spiritual. It gets your subconscious fully on board. It clears limiting beliefs quickly without years of work. And it gives you my personal process, a framework that you can return to every year with me. I hold this course as a live virtual event once a year, but don't worry if you missed it because I've created an on-demand version complete with all the bells and whistles. With the same lifetime access to all my yearly live Create Your Dream Year virtual events at no extra cost. And my five-day summer Create Your Dream Year on-demand sale is now open. So you can go through the program completely on your own pace and on your own schedule at this crucial halfway point in the year. But it's only available until Sunday, July 16th at midnight ET time. It's just a five-day sale, so hurry, because then it's not available until January 2024. So if you're ready to learn the best ways to set goals and manifest your most important dreams this year, and you want to get the exact system that I've used over and over to manifest my dream homes, my dream businesses, and my dream life into existence, then go to carmenmarshall.com forward slash create dash 2023 dash on dash demand. I'll put the link in the show notes as well to register and get started today. I can't wait to share my process with you and help you make reaching your goals inevitable in 2023. All right, let's get back to the podcast. You started to realize that you could get so narrow in your belief. And Mm. we saw this. It's like Mm. sugar will kill you. Sugar will kill you. Sugar will kill you. And sure enough, they would eat sugar and they would get sick. So you started to, Mm. we started to experience this and recognize we live on planet Earth. And we live in a variety of cultures They eat a variety of ways and how they balance their food. And if we just end up thinking that this was the only way we could eat, it was going to create serious limitation, not only Mm -hmm. for ourselves, but certainly for our children. Yeah. And then we also learned, I think, a fundamental lesson, too, about food and food preparation. And in all the different countries we've been in in the world, and homes we visited and meals we've shared. If the food is prepared with love and yes, just yes. It, and it, it just changes the energy of it. Everything. Yeah. Everything. Yeah. Yeah. How so, you eat it. Like do you eat yeah, it slowly? Do you eat it family? Yeah. yeah. And and yeah. so many of the things that we learned about ourselves was that we had I call them misplaced beliefs. And I heard this wonderful little saying. There's his name. So I think he's called the Sad Guru. Have you, have you ever heard of him? Yes. Yeah. I love this. I love this guy. 
You know, I, I just recently discovered him within the last year. And I said, I said, man, I really like what he has to say. Um, and he talked about, someone says, well, I believe this, I believe. And he goes, do you know what the difference is here? Do you know it or do you believe it? And he said, believing something isn't knowing something. Mm -hmm. He said, there are very few things you really know. You know you were born, for sure. You know you're going to die because you've seen it happen enough. <laughs> but everything else in between, is it, could it be that it's your beliefs and that more intensely you try to justify a belief that it becomes more and more intense and then you mistake it for knowing. And I love, I just love the, you know, he didn't say it exactly that way. He said it probably better than I did, but it's, it really has been an interesting thing for Penny and I to reflect back. And then in going forward with our lives is what, yeah, I believe, do I believe that? Do I know that? Do I mm. really know that? Mm. And that kind of is took us to, again, another way of expressing, let's say, in a spiritual context, what's important in life. And, mm. um, you know, it's better to stick with the knowing and know that you're probably the sum total of your beliefs at any moment. That's what's mm. expressing you as a being. And so be really careful what you believe in. And, and, you know, and, and there's, is there any need to, to actually fortify that belief to, with a level of intensity where you're in conflict with someone else who doesn't share that same belief? Yeah. And of course, we've seen enough of that around the world right now. So, uh, that, that I think is some for just a, it's small in one sense, but it's huge in another sense that, mm difference between believing and knowing. So yeah, and anyway. I think sometimes throwing ourselves into these different things helps us really know and then relax as well. Like going deeply into macrobiotic or I went deeply into raw. And right. by going deeply into something, you really start to understand and know, but then you can loosen and say, okay, well actually I want to be eating meat here. You know, or right. But I, I sometimes I think you, you have, to, and I've seen you guys do this as well. Like you go deeply into Panchakarma, you go deeply into this, but then you come back and relax and you're then studying something else and your worldview just becomes so, has so much room and so much expanse. But I yeah. think it's also because you've gone deeply into something. Yeah. yeah. You know, it, when you can expand your view, it's so much more relaxing. It is. It's so much easier. Yeah. <laughs> your level of acceptance. Yeah. And you stop yeah. taking yourself so seriously, you know? Yeah. And I think, but when you're young, I think taking yourself seriously may be a necessary part of. Like a rite of passage. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I recently heard a quote that what you resonate with, you invest in. And I really like that because it, that, that actually speaks volumes to us about how we've lived our life. And so, yeah, even when someone is listening to a podcast or reading a book or whatever, and, and they find, you know, not everything 
about the book they're going to resonate with or not everything about what somebody is talking about they will. But somewhere in there will be a piece that they truly are resonating with. And that is a key then to investigate and invest energy in. Yeah. So, And I wonder if that's why you've been able to go from thing to thing, you know, so like some things you've gone into and then the energy has changed or you've made a decision like this is not what I want my life to be about, but it's been all about, does it resonate? And is that where we want to put our energy? And yeah. yeah. And, and I love what you said too, that, it can sometimes be hard to move to something new if we're worried about money or we don't have a supportive partner. But I think if, if we can make it more important, like, is this really resonating with where I am in my life now? And yeah. is it worse to give up money than to give up my values? I think that's such right. a good way to make decisions. Yeah. 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 So at the end of the day, we have to stand for something. Yeah. yeah. And Phil and I, you know, one thing, Carmen, you know, we, we're coming up on 50 years. 50 years together. I mean, we've actually been together for 51 years. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like we had an experience in Taos, actually. We lived in Taos. Um, and we were driving one day in the car, and our three sons were in the car, and they had a friend with them. And so each one of the boys turned around, and they referred to us. You know, one said mom, the other one said dad, and the other one said mom. And the the young guy who was there with him, they said, wait a minute, wait a minute. You mean you three all have the same mother and father? And we started, and our kids looked and said, yes. And they said, he said, that's like unheard of. That's like, you know, great grandparent stuff. And so anyway, Phil and I, (laughs) we've had this, and I think, it, you know, one of the reasons that we have been able to that are, again our our core belief together, the the spiritual aspect of our life being the single focus, right? That is the focus, but also putting ourselves in situations that we had to rely on one another. You know, mm. we didn't. When you move the number of times we've moved, I think we've moved actually 40 sometimes, right? And so when you do that and you end up in a, you know, a new environment and a different culture and a different, you know, and in the United States. So I will preface this saying that our moves have always been within the United States. We've traveled to other countries, but in terms of addresses, They've all been in the United States, but as we well know, there are many cultures living in the United States, and New Mexico is a very distinct one. It's a very unusual culture, and that was our first. We moved to Taos, New Mexico in 1987 from the East Coast. That was a big shift into a very different culture, and so Phil and I have always had to rely on each other to make it work, to figure it out. Mm. There wasn't, you know, we didn't move because there was another job that was waiting. It was like, okay, we, we're we going to move and then we have to create yeah. something. Yeah, classic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Our classic case in point of that was when we moved to Paris. It was a time, right about the time that we were separating ourselves from 
advanced nutritional was, research. Yeah, was and that it was time, a yeah. rather abrupt and, and it painful was quite, separation. Yeah, yeah, it was one of those things. It was like a dream we had, and we nurtured it, and we created it, and then we got into this. You, t- you talk about your core values, right? I The reason I left that business was we got into a disagreement with the venture capital firm that was funding us about cheapening the products in order to increase the margin so the company would look better for a public offering. And I just said, you know, the reason I started this company, and I said, uh, the reason why most of my uh, customers are physicians, you know, healers, um, naturopaths, a huge group of them, was because they knew the quality was there and I wasn't compromising the bioavailability, the ingredients, the manufacturing process. And yeah, they were a little more expensive. And margins were a little, you know, but I said, we were building a wonderful business here and one that would sustain itself if you just let us alone. So we got into that and we got into a, a, a you know, a, a real uh, standoff on this. And so then they brought in a, a group of guys to try to take the company over. And I won't go through the details of that, but it's it's classic um, takeover strategies that these guys use. And so I just said, you know, I'll, I'll walk away from this before I'm going to be part of something that compromises and could affect the, the well-being of so many people that we or trusted our reputation for uh, providing these products. So that's when we left and we, you know, and Penny said it was a little abrupt because they wanted me out of there as soon as I, they realized I wasn't going to play ball. And so um, here we were, we plunked ourselves down in Taos because Penny, had, we had been to a, a, a convention, uh, a conference on nutrition and health and supplementation and it was one of the big ones out in was it North, in Las, Las Vegas, Vegas. Yeah. and we were coming back and we stopped in Albuquerque and then drove up to Taos to see a friend from Penny's family and while we were there I remember if you've ever been there there's you come up out of the canyon and there's this you're looking right down the Rio Grande and there's a huge expanse rim with mountains and the, the light up there as an artist, I can tell you the light is spectacular. And we just hit it at that moment. And Penny just said, I think I want to live here. <laughs> Two weeks later, we lived there. Yeah. Six children. weeks later, we went, we moved we back, did. told them we were moving there, packed everything up. The boys said, Do they speak English out there? <laughs> they were all young. Show on the map where it was. So anyway, we ended up out there. So now what are we going to do? So we ended up um, looking around and taking our time, and we um, we bought a house out in this little uh, outside of Taos. It was a very unusual house that had been built by a abstract expressionist artist from the east, from Greenwich Village, and he'd moved out there years ago. I was famously known as the Umbrella House, and we, it, it needed work, we bought it, and um, moved in 
And then, okay, what are we going to do with our lives? Well, the real estate agent who had helped us with the purchase, we became real good friends with. And I said, you know, I got to figure out something to do now. She says, well, you know, I just might have something that's interesting for you too. And it was this place called the Abominable Snow Mansion Adventure Lodge. And that's the literal name. Won an award in the International Hosteling Association for the most unusual name. We turned it into a year-round business. We had teepee lodging and bunk houses, as well as the main big adobe building. We ended up buying it and running it. It was the best. It mm. was. Mm. The, the world, world comes through cows. I mean, the most eccentric, yes. interesting yeah, creative, sometimes people. completely oh, crazy and, people, yeah. Oh, yeah. amazing people. And, and most, most people yeah. stayed with us. And we had an idea actually when we bought it. I said it was we kind of wanted to create like you know the stories you would read about the in medieval in medieval times when there would be travelers and they would all they would come to a roadhouse and spend mm -hmm. the night and they would tell stories. And so we. We had said that that's what we wanted to create, and there was no television. Uh, it was bunk rooms, and there was a fireplace in the middle, and there was a pool table. And we just got to see how people would come and sit around the fire, and they would create friendships and relationships. And when we knew we had actually completed the mission of creating this, we had, one day I was in the kitchen. We did a lot of cooking at that time. We had a lot of big meals that we prepared. And this man walks in. He's probably, he's close to seven feet tall. His head almost hit the ceiling. And he was a Maasai who had gone to um, Oxford and gotten his medical degree. And he was on a walkabout. And so he's standing there. And I'm looking at him. And I just, I said, how did you get here? And he said, I'm here because I heard about your hostel from an Australian in Stockholm. It happened. We did it. This oh, is exactly wow. what we wanted. And, you know, and he was an extraordinary man. Oh, I had to ask was. him, I said, what do you eat? So I have and he said, eat, I have to eat, eat meat, meat every, every day. day. Okay. Get <laughs> yeah. yeah. the longest shin bones. And his teeth, I mean, he was showing us all the, all the, his whole yeah. genetics of how different it was yeah. because of that. Yeah. It was, Again, it was just such, oh, yes. Yes. How, the, yeah. how we adapt to our yeah. environment. We, so. have, uh, we have many, many funny um, hostile stories. How long did you it for? Ten years. Yeah. Um, we, we ran it ourselves for five. And then we uh, we moved to Steamboat Springs because our boys were all into uh, snowboarding and some of them competitive ski racing. So we moved there and then had someone manage the hostel yeah. for us. And actually what enabled us to do that, to move to Steamboat, quite frankly, was uh, getting our USANA business started in the network marketing industry, which became kind of like the right type of business, it, it enabled us. That business model for people like us yeah. is incredible. It, it yeah. enabled us to yeah. move where we wanted mm -hmm. to move. It didn't matter, you know, we would show up, we could create whatever we needed to create. So, and and the 
you know, for us finding the right company um, with our backgrounds, with Phil's background, having started a company in the in the nutritional industry, and we knew a lot about how supplements were made, how they're manufactured, what goes into them, and so. It was a really important thing yeah. when we found USANA Health Sciences that it was the right fit for and, us. And, you know, that's 25, yeah. almost 30 years now since then. And we are still very actively involved, mostly at this point in our lives, the product end of it, because that's still very important to us. And we we just had dinner with the well, retired now former um, head of research and development that reported to the founder, Dr. Wentz, who even at 82 is still very involved and um, really got a sense of, you know, that, oh, yeah, things are still really good there at the product end of this business. They are really, really good. So that's carried us through using the products, of course, but building that business, very similar to like, you know, Carmen, you you work with us a lot. It's uh, you know, teaching people how to become proactive in their health. Teaching mm-hmm. people they have a choice. Teaching people they do not have to abdicate their health to this convoluted mess of a Western medical allopathic system that we're all unfortunately in, and that you can you can do so much to obviate or to to, to prevent having to engage with that system by by becoming aware of those four or five things I talked about, but supplementation and diet, rest, reduction of stress and exercise, put those things together in a, in a responsible way. You can create great uh, longevity. You can live a, at least a healthy quality of your life well beyond where most people do. And that makes life way more enjoyable. And mentally too. You know, we think that the past three years has been so hard on people mentally, but those five pillars have everything to do with your mood, your mental health, everything. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was, I just had this running through my head and this was told to us, the term, you will always have the support of nature. Now you think about that. You know, if you live with that, right, you will always have the support of nature, which we, you mentioned about living, living in the flow. And I think that term, you know, you can always get stuck in an eddy. So I, there are rapids. You know, there are things that happen along the way and that have happened to us. It has not been like just a cruise down the deep you know, slow moving stream. And, but always having the support of nature is knowing that whatever comes, we will get through it. We have had amazing gifts along the way of meeting extraordinary people. We have, you know, we have attracted some extraordinary people who have then changed our journey and expanded our journey, you know, starting with um, a man named Swami Bhashyananda, who was from the Vedanta order of, of monks. He was out of Chicago. Um, we, and Michio Kushi, I mean, meeting people who, who 
not just lectured, but they lived. They lived mm. what they talked. You know, the, the tongue in their mouth and the tongue in their shoe was absolutely saying yeah, the same right. thing. You know, that right? whole thing about who's doing the talking. Yeah. The tongue yeah. in your mouth and the tongue in your yeah. shoe. And if and, you keep saying you're going to go right, and but you keep turning left, it's the tongue in your yeah. shoe that's really yeah. talking. And so, that, the, and yeah. have, and then we met um, a Dr. Pankaj Naram and a woman named Marion Zacharin. And these were incredibly were amazing, so, powerful people who real, took really us. Really gifted. And, and expanded our journey in India and traveling with Pankaj. Um, to Benares and and being exposed to a culture, uh, we had a moment of we were he had his young son with him, so we were in the the burial ghats along the Ganges River, and he was there, and they were burning the bodies, and Pankaj was educating his nine year old son as to how you correctly burn a body and how he is going to have to do this for his father. So Phil and I got to be the nine-year-olds along with his along son, with his son hearing yes. these words and understanding this from their culture. And, and realizing that those fires have been burning for over 2000 years. I mean, it's just continuous and our family lineage. Yeah. There are people there whose entire lineage traces back that far. They are the fire people. Yeah. They are the ones that burn the bodies. They're experts. Yeah. At or then the, the then families the that bring the wood. The wood gatherers that yeah. bring the wood. This is a system that has worked and continued rain or shine, winter or summer. It doesn't matter what was mm -hmm. going on. And it's continually going on 24 hours a day. And, mm -hmm. and we just, you know, had it this was, opportunity to, to, to see it there. through those eyes. Yeah. To not be the tourist who's yeah. standing outside, but to be inside, standing next to a fire, listening to really the sounds. Really watching the whole process. Yeah. Watching them put ghee on various parts to increase the heat. And I mean, mm. it, you know, in our culture, that's just not part of our culture no, no. at all. No, it was, uh, you're learning, you know, I mean, there's a very definite process involved here and the ch the sounds i can i mean it's just going through my head right now the bodies that are wrapped beautifully and they to die in banares or varanasi they call it and to be burned you know cremated there and then have your ashes spread on the ganges is the height of cultural the cultural beliefs of much of india so that's continually going on, and they're set up for that. This is a big area. There are lots of fires here. And so we, we were able to stay at an ashram that was just above it. And then we, we came down at, that, at night and watched, you know, walked right into this where we were invited and were able to, to stand literally next to the funeral pyre, as close as you could except for the heat. And then watch how so respectfully and lovingly everybody involved was cremating the body. It wasn't like sticking them in a furnace like they do over here. 
I mean, this literally was a was a beautiful ceremony. And but along with that were the agoras, which not a lot of people know about. They were in there that were over an edge and they were bathing in the ashes and chanting and doing these amazing rituals and they're of course goats and <laughs> cows and walking around and, and and you know bells and floor chanting and and then in the early like four in the morning when the first light monkeys started the monkeys start screeching and and it was just this saturation of sound and and an experience just your know, tactical smell everything about it you just it was just it took us out of anything we had ever ever experienced in our lives in the cultures that we grew up in and i think that was profound for both of us that particular day in our lives you know about moments or events in your life because it didn't end there carmen then we went to visit the Agora monk. And the can you Agora, explain, because I, I don't think everyone knows the term Agora. Can you explain what that means? Well, how it was explained to me, there are 108 paths to God. There are a hundred and I think 100 or 104 right-hand paths. And there are four left-hand paths. And the most severe Extreme. extreme of the left-hand paths is the path of the Agora. And they it's almost their life is the antithesis of what you would think would be spiritual. Mm-hmm. They are, and they are very, very unbe- beyond eccentric is what they are. Mm-hmm. And um, but highly spiritual, and they learn how to control nature, meaning they can interact with with nature in a way. That's one of their big things, is to be able like to single out a bird that's flying in the air and through some way of communicating the bird come and land, a wild bird, you know, things like that. And so um, we we met, I met two Agoras. One was at Dr. Naram's clinic in in um it was it was the one that was off swami vivekananda it was in mumbai but i'm trying to think whether it was you know that um movie slumdog millionaire yep yep well dr naram had a clinic in that slum free treatment penny Penny and i were in that clinic worked in that clinic when we went over there amazing amazing Knowing that you've been together for 50 years, what would you say is the key to success in maintaining a really connected relationship for that long? Because we don't see that that much in today's world. Like yeah. people get divorced much more. And, and your story of your, you know, your, the friends of your kids saying it's so unusual that you have the same parents. So could yeah. you share what for listeners, what you feel really helps with staying together, but staying connected? I mean, it's one thing to stay together, but you want to stay together being connected best friends, you know, on this journey together. Yeah. I, I think one thing. We, we get asked been, that question a lot, yeah. Carmen, and there's so, it's a hard thing to answer. We've had that. to rely on one another. Yeah. We've had yeah. to rely and trust 
one another, that we can do what needs to be done in order to 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 move in and live the life that we've lived and at the end of the day knowing that no matter what our particular um commitment and knowing that the direction that we ultimately are going is one uh, in a spiritual nature then everything else takes a back seat. And yeah, are there times? Of course there are, right? But at the end of the day, it, it, is, a, it, it is a... Well, life is a spiritual journey. Yeah. yeah. If you cut away everything, that's what it is. You can mm-hmm. call it whatever you want to call it. We're moving moment to moment to moment to moment. And you're either living in love or you're living in fear. And you can really break it down just to that. Every expression of your existence that is not love is founded in fear. I'm, we've been told that by so many, what I consider sages or highly evolved beings. And we have that choice to, to regard that. So if I see, you know, I say, I love Penny. I can't even tell you how many ways. But the most important way is that uh, um, that connectivity and that respect of, you know, that heart-centered. And over the years, we've just kind of, you know, there, we're not, we, have, we are individuals, yes. We are individual expressions of something that's unified. We're just human beings on this earth in this particular cycle, in this, in this time, this lifetime. We're in these bodies, and we're here to, to evolve and to learn. Yeah. Life is experience. You know, the, the Buddhist says life is a struggle. Well, you could say it is, but there's if, if you're up for the challenge of that struggle, and you can make friends with it, be with it, instead of in conflict with the, with the struggle, then you can move through your life. And um, I'm not saying this is Penny's side. We're partners in this. Mm. We're inseparable partners in this. And we made that commitment. And it's not, you know, in sickness and health and all that. Yeah, okay. But it's way past that. Mm. This leads to my next question. For right now, there's a lot of fear with the re- a recession and just where the world's economy is. Now, you guys have been through lots of recessions. You've been through, you know, markets going up and down. What yeah. would you give advice for people? right now like how should they because it's always how we react to situations inside like what should our our inside barometer thermostat be like when everything else is you know very up in the air yeah well the first thing i'm addressing that is just about the amount of misinformation that is out there that we're all being bombarded with so we've got situations going on, and we do, we do have some struggles on a, economically on a global basis. There's no question about it. This inflation is real. All those things are real, but the way it's being handled and the polarization and all the smoke screens that are being thrown at us, it's my advice to anybody first and foremost is to turn that stuff off. 
Mm. Just ask yourself, I'm here in this moment in my life. What can I do to support my well-being and the well-being of say, my family? You know, it, you, it's to be open-minded, to be calm, um, be industrious. And that it's fostering this belief. Um, we always go back to this saying, um, we were with somebody one time and they said, you know, I just, this is an older person. And it was about the flow. And he just observing you guys, he said, I get a feeling that if somebody stripped both of you naked, put you in an airplane with nothing but a parachute and threw you out somewhere in the, over some place in our, in our, on earth at 20 or 30,000 feet that you guys could survive just fine. Mm. I said, yeah, I said, that's the nicest compliment you could ever have given us. I said, as crazy as that sounds. And I don't know if that's absolute. I mean, I'm not going to take that as true, but I think I understood what he was saying that that comes back to this, this grounded, committed, belief in self if you don't have that and you're not and you're it's really hard to believe or and and that and that belief in self has to turn into a knowing a self-knowing and so if you can get there then nothing nothing can affect you in it I mean, literally, it's hard to put in words, but um, it's very philosophical to talk this mm. way mm. in a world that, in a very seriously material way, is changing at a rapid rate. And, you know, I'm 78, so I've seen a lot of different things come and go in almost eight, you know, eight decades on this planet. And this is uh, this is a real challenge what we're going through now. But it's also but a time where hugely exciting. There's tremendous energy available. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, Barbara Marks Hubbard that was always my favorite, one of my favorite quotes from Barbara Marks Hubbard when they had dropped the atomic bomb, and she said, "What good can come?" from all this energy. And so right now, there is a lot of energy. It's a lot of chaos. You know, there are books written, The Courage to Create um, was written about and talked about the period in an artist's life just before they finish a piece. It it feels like it's total chaos. There's a wonderful Mm. story. We just got this book um, from Strength to Strength, Arthur Brooks. he had a great story about the fisherman who, who we, when he was a young boy, the fisherman said, cast your line when the tide has going out. And he said, and then it's coming in. It's got the most turbulence, right? It's the most, he said, it's where the most activity and it's dredging up all of the algae from the bottom. And he said, 
that's when it's the richest time. And so we're kind of in that period right now um, where all of this stuff is being dredged up and bubbles are coming to the surface. And and I, to me, I think what we can do is really observe our own self in terms of how we're reacting and responding. And when mm. we feel ourselves start to contract, we just simply know that's a fear response. And that's not going to get us anywhere, right? It's just, it's just what it is, a fear response. And if we can learn to accept that and let it go, allow it to go by. And also we had a, a, one of our, one of our uh, uh, periods of time, we had to do some training, some fairly intense uh, training with uh, work that we were doing with our family. And one of the leaders of this particular personal growth program, she said, I want you to take your hand. And she said, put your hand in front of your face. And your hand is now going to talk to you. And your hand is going to say, that's not fear. That's excitement. Because those two feelings are very close. They feel very similar. You know, it's just that when you're a competitor and you're in a starting gate, you feel like the adrenaline can feel so bad that you feel sick to your stomach. And And all of the energy it's like you feel like your legs are lead and 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 it's this incredible moment where you know it's like mel robbins right it's the the three two one go thing when she said this a countdown because something happens when you get to one that makes you move and so it's like that right now and and again it's you know walk outside and look at the tree it's still there it hasn't changed. And I think it's, it's cycles too. You know, they, I saw the great quote where it said, a typical bull market is eight years and a typical bear market is two years, like over and over and over. You know, so even in a bear market or, and of course it seems, wor- well, I think it always feels worse when you're in it. So yeah. like back in 2008, it would have felt worse when we're in it. But I think to realize yeah. like, Phil, when you're saying like it, it may be hard to express, yeah. but if, if we can keep that, that feeling inside of us, it'll help us go through these cycles because it, it's going to happen again in 10 years. Like another, yeah. 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 That is life on planet Earth. Yeah. And, and, you know, again, I mean, from a purely economic standpoint, when you get into these bare cycles, um, there's a lot of manipulation that goes on in this stuff that is beyond us, you know, normal folks and um it's just to acknowledge the fact that is going on and you're going to probably see transfers of wealth with the wealthy during these bear markets because they can they're playing that game and but they usually are short-lived because the effect it has on everybody else that's supporting that wealth um they can only push that so far so and for so long. So we, we, you know, you are, that's absolutely right. The eight year, two year thing um, is, and I, I don't know, I, I talked to some people that seem to be, that are kind of experts in this and, you know, they're not pulling the panic button. Um, they're kind of concerned if you want to get real technical about 
present government and its its relationship with the Fed and all these other things that are going on in that executive order one four zero seven about digital currencies and all. You know, there's all that talk. There's all that going on. But right now, I think for all of us, is is really like, let's see what we can do today. Find a place where we can, you know, be grateful. And then, as my wonderful friend Doctor Soul, Penny's and my friend, has said about gratitude, he said gratitude is receiving. That's when you're receiving something. You're grateful. Said. Well, what good is all that gratitude if it just stays there? What about going out, moving forward? So if you receive something, its real value is in your ability to share that with others. And so to me, that's that's sort of what I've adopted and Penny has adapted with our... Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, I'd absolutely love if you left a review on iTunes. It really helps me to get the podcast out there to support more people just like you to create soulful lives. And as a thank you, I'd love to send you my 20 personal affirmations for manifesting an aligned, magical, and fulfilling life. To access this freebie, simply send a screenshot of your review to soulcraft at carmenmarshall.com and I'll send you my favorite affirmations and mantras straight to your inbox. All my love and I'll see you on the next episode.